the curtain, we've talked about death and the afterlife and all that this means uh, for us today. You know, I'm fascinated as I walk through the, the corridors of this movie theater. In the fall, you always have these movies, these horror movies come out, right? Because it's Halloween. I mean, you got Halloween number 150, you know, they started making those movies in 1978. I remember when I was eight years old and I saw that movie. I'm telling you, I was scared for 30 years because of, of <laughs> just, and they still make them, you know, our fascination with this, and this all has to do with, you know, death and the, all of these things, and people have these views and these fears and these, these, um, uh, Wow, wild ideas about death and the afterlife and all of the pieces and parts involved there. Uh, so that's kind of one of the reasons why we're doing this series. And the first part, we talked about how you can look at the subject of death differently. It's usually looked at in a really, really negative way. You know, it's usually people don't want to talk about it, think about it, prepare for it, forget it. The last place that people want to go is to a funeral. The, you know, I, I've heard of churches that actually have uh, tried to meet in funeral homes. Uh, church plants like, you know, we planted this church in a movie theater. I've heard of churches that try to plant in a funeral home. <laughs> Not the best choice of location, right? Because people just stay away from this. But you, you, uh, uh, Philippians, Paul writes, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has a positive perspective on death. He actually says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Wow, I mean, his outlook on death is very, very different than we typically think of this. And so you can have a different view. You can have a different perspective on the ominous, you know, grim reaper of death to come. And then in the second part, we talked about, well, the afterlife is a real thing and how naturalism cannot explain all of life. There's many things in life that naturalism can't explain. And uh, a supernaturalist worldview is probably more accurate. It doesn't dismiss the natural, but it doesn't say that, you know, God doesn't exist and the afterlife doesn't exist and there's no miracles. No, we, we, we look at the pages of Scripture and clearly it's teaching a supernaturalist worldview. We saw why, why does naturalism fail? And it, it, it does. In many, many ways, it's inadequate to explain all of life. And we talked about how you can be a part of this kind of sentiment that Paul had uh, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. You can become part of that group, the, the we, not we in French, but we, W-E. Paul says, we believe, we know uh, when this earthly body is destroyed, we have a house a place being built for us by God. And you can become part of that we when you turn to the Lord, as he puts it very simply. And you can know that uh, as long as you're at home in the body, you're away from the Lord. But when you're away from the body, you're at home with the Lord. You're either in one or two places. So again, this idea that the person does not die. Physical body dies, or in Paul's language, goes to sleep. 
but the person lives on. And by the way, the moment that you pass through the curtain, as I like to term it, the moment that you die physically, which as we saw is a little hard to figure out actually, but the moment that that happens, you go consciously and alive to the other side. There is not a soul sleep where you're you sort of d dissolve into the Borg of oblivion, you know, hopefully to await uh, some sort of awakening eons from now. That's not what we see in the pages of Scripture. In fact, we see the total opposite. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, uh, Acts chapter 7, as Paul is overseeing the brutal stoning of this man, he, he has a vision. He looks up and he says, I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father of God. And of course, this enrages the people and they execute him. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And at this point, we're told he, he died, he fell asleep. So the implication there is that this was an immediate thing. He was going straight into the presence of God at that moment. Um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is, is changed for a moment and his, his countenance changes and you've got Moses and uh, Elijah. Elijah. Is it Elijah or Elisha up there? It's Elijah up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, just going by memory. I think it's Matthew 17. But Moses and Elijah, uh, excuse me, they're two dead guys. They're dead, and yet they're alive. They're there appearing as Jesus is changed. And Peter sees them up there talking with Jesus as if to, it's, it's as if to say that these two, these pillars of the Old Testament are confirming who Jesus is, but they're alive. They're not in oblivion with the Borg or something like that, you know, they're alive. Curious, when, when Jesus is crucified, you have two criminals on either side of him. And uh, the one criminal is mocking, the other criminal is not. And the other criminal says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says to Jesus. Wow, he has a lot of insight as to who Jesus is, that somewhere down the road, there's a kingdom that's coming that Jesus is going to reign over. So he's saying, you remember me. No one else here is going to remember me. You remember me. And Jesus turns to him and he says, I tell you the truth today, not sometime in the future. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, the moment that you pass through the curtain, uh, it's going to happen. So, uh, um, curious, but the, 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 the teaching there is that there seems to be an immediate uh, transfer of the person through the other side. I'm thinking of another example, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, the story that Jesus tells. You've got these two men and both of them die. And yet on the other side... One is trying to communicate from Hades. He's trying to communicate to Abraham, who's also dead, who he sees. And he's having a conversation with Abraham, who's up 
in paradise with, the, with Lazarus by his side. And he's trying to dialogue with Abraham to have Abraham send Lazarus uh, to first comfort him, which is refused. And then, well, then uh, if someone comes back from the dead, someone comes to, from the other side to my brothers, maybe they will repent. Well, this, these people are all deceased. Abraham is deceased. Lazarus is deceased. The rich man is deceased. And yet they're alive. In, on the other side, you see? So there's, there's all of these pictures of this. Even in the Old Testament, uh, the sons of Korah who rebel against Moses and challenge Moses out in the wilderness, the, the, we're told that Sheol opens up and swallows them alive, and they go down alive into this place of the dead, this kind of shadowy place in the Old Testament. So... It's an immediate thing, okay? Uh, just to throw that in for you because it's often misunderstood and we saw that uh, it, it, with the case of heaven. And then we tried to actually defend the, the doctrine and the reality of hell. How is God going to deal with sin? How is he going to deal with uh, the devil and his angels? How is he going to do this in correspondence and in relationship with his own nature and his own character and the fact that human beings are infinite we have a beginning we'll have no end right how does that whole work and so we tried to justify even the doctrine of hell and then last week we talked about the resurrection of the body and the physical body is actually going to be changed and brought back and in a sense, recreated, not, not reincarnated, not resuscitated, but resurrected. Very different, not a dying, perishable, mortal body, but an immortal body, a glorified body in Paul's language, a resurrected body. But that we, if you notice, that was just for people who are so-called in Christ, people who have died in Christ, people who have been followers of Jesus, people who have turned their hearts over to God. Well, what about the rest? And that's a really good question. And this is one of the reasons why I think you can't live without the second coming. And I want to try to, to prove that to you today, why you can't live without the second coming from Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 27 to 28, just as an example. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time. Why? Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Great verse because it clearly, clearly states two comings of Jesus. One for one purpose and one for a very different purpose. Revelation, uh, last book of the Bible, chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, 
and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. This is uh, John writing this, you know, this apocalyptic language. Uh, uh, Revelation is an apocalypse, this style of literature where it's an unveiling. It's like if you pull this curtain up and you and you saw behind it, you'd see these huge, huge, huge speakers. That's what apocalypse means. It's, you're, it's no longer eclipsed. It's apocalypsed. You can see behind it, behind the curtain in apocalyptic literature. You had all these images and all this uh, language of fantasy in some ways. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations he will rule them with an iron scepter from psalm 2 he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written king of kings and lord of lords this is a clear picture of Jesus at the second coming. And Revelation 21, we'll get into that in uh, just a few minutes. I want to try and persuade you why you can't live without this hope in your life and why this is essential for you, why it's essential for you to meditate on, why it's essential for you to uh, look forward to and not look with dread to. First of all, why is Jesus coming back? Well, because you prayed for it for 2,000 years. What's the most famous prayer that Jesus taught people how to pray? Tell me what it is. Online, tell me what it is. Our, our yeah. Right? Tell me the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You could do a King Jamesy, you know, if you want. But what's he say? Stop. Your kingdom come. Okay, you're praying. You're really praying for the, the kingdom of God to come. Okay, well, it's going to come. <laughs> so one reason why is because you prayed for it. Um, but if you look at the language, and this, this is what people sometimes forget. You look at the language, for example, of Revelation 19, and you think about the reason for the second coming. I mean, you have some harsh language in there. And you can't really escape it. The image that John is trying to convey is that Jesus is coming and Jesus has a very specific purpose. And the purpose that he's, that he's bringing in there is it's not to die for people's sin. That's done. The purpose that he's coming for in Revelation 19 is justice. And it is justice with a capital J. I mean, this, you know, uh, coming out of his mouth is a two-edged sword. That's an image of judgment coming on a, right ho a white horse. That's an image of justice against darkness. That's a, that's a hero image. Uh, any of you ever seen uh, Lord of the Rings or read it? They copy this, where you see Gandalf coming down the hill, you know, on his, on his white horse. This is ripped right out of the pages of the book of Revelation. This is an image of judgment. It's an image of righteous judgment. His eyes are like a blazing fire. He's angry. 
He's, he's bringing the justice of God here, and you can't escape it. You've got language. Uh, the word justice is used. Um, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You cannot get any more explicit if you're going to use uh, that language and that style of liter literature about judgment than that. You have, uh, back in that day, they would, they would make wine uh, the old-fashioned way. It's a wine press, and they, they would step on it, kind of. It would, there's a technique to it. And this is the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. Wow. I mean, he's pouring out judgment. This is, and there, there's, he makes war. War against what? Well, you read the backdrop of Revelation. This is a war against evil. This is a war against sin. This is a war, this is a cosmic kind of war in a sense. And this is the ultimate uh, meeting out of judgment against it. Much of Revelation, from Revelation 6 to about 19, is the outpouring of the justice of God on planet Earth. God is behind a lot of what's going on there if you read that book carefully. People like to almost science fictionalize the book of Revelation and, you know, they go crazy with pin the tail on the Antichrist and it's this person, it's this person, it's this. That's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to show God's justice, his ultimate justice over evil, which will ultimately be accomplished in the second coming of Jesus. There's a lot of unfinished business that needs to be taken care of. Folks, look around at the world. I find that, I find that people in churches are very observant. And uh, they, they, the more they observe about life, the more they observe about people, the more that they see, the more that they understand, the more they look and they say, we need God. That's why we're in the church. <laughs> we need God because we see ultimately there's a problem that needs to be corrected. It needs to be fixed. And humanity does not have the solution. And money is not the solution. And materialism is not the solution. And, and pleasure is not the solution. And naturalism is not the solution. The solution is faith. The solution is God. And that's why people gravitate to places of worship. Whatever religion you want to it, this is the reason why people do that, at least in many cases. Sometimes the reasons are not, but for the most part, people consistently try to worship some kind of God because they observe life and they say, there's big problems that need a solution way outside of what we can do, what anyone can do, what anything can do. We need God. Folks, how much more do you think God sees that? How much more do you think God sees brokenness and suffering and injustice and victimization and inequality and abuse and war and sin and evil and all of these things repeated, 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 repeated for centuries, centuries, centuries into millennium? I mean, 
If we feel that way, can you imagine how God, he has to fix it. He has to correct it. He has to judge it. He has to deal with it. You say, well, isn't hell enough? Isn't that enough? Folks, in a sense, no. As we saw, hell and heaven, these are, these are very much a continuation of the person's posture this side of the grave. You posture yourself up against God. When you pass through that curtain, you're going to be posturing yourself up against God in eternity. That's, that, was the, that was the lean that you took. You say, well, what about all the people who didn't even know about Christianity and, you know, Christianity is only 2,000 years old. What about all the rest of the people before? Great question. But a close reading of the Bible will show you Jesus was there. Jesus was there in the beginning, in creation, Jesus was there. In fact, he is the creator of all things. So this idea that, well, what about the people before Christianity started? In a sense, you could say that Christianity really had no beginning. I mean, if Jesus had no beginning. But also, people are responsible for how they respond to the way that God revealed himself to them. And this is what the scripture teaches, that nobody has an excuse it doesn't matter where they're born. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what the religion of their family or their heritage is. Everyone has an opportunity to respond to the basic revelation of God by what he's made. This is the argument that Paul makes. It's by what has been made, what has been created. People can look up into the sky, even if they can't talk, even if they don't understand language. The skies are shouting out to them about the existence of God. So people are accountable for that. That's God revealing himself without the Bible, without an understanding of Jesus, without an understanding of anything except you look up in the sky and there's a, that's a revelation. That's God preaching. That's him revealing himself to people. Everybody is held accountable for that. And the church is held accountable for spreading the message. At the same time, how can they call upon one who they haven't heard of? And how can they hear of the person unless someone goes and tells them about Jesus? How are they going to know unless somebody goes and tells them? That's why the whole, the whole impetus of the New Testament is to go out and, and preach and to go out and make disciples of all nations. How are people going to call upon the Savior if they don't even know who he is? So we can't use this excuse, well, you know, what about people who never heard? What about everybody hears? And the church is accountable as well. So we're, we're both, both groups are accountable. But you say, well, isn't hell enough? It, it, no, because this is just a continuation. A person postures themselves up against God. And continues in that stance against God. When they pass through the curtain, that's the stance that they, will, that they will hold. The one difference is it's too late. It's too late. After you pass through the curtain, it's too late. You can't turn to the Lord at that point. It's too late. Now you live with your posture. And you live that way in eternity. Same thing for the person who turns to the Lord. That's the posture that the person took. That's the posture that they'll take into eternity. But what about the rest? What about all the damage that was caused? What about all the injustice? What about all the suffering? What about all of the death? What about all of the war? What about all of the wrong that was never, ever made right? 
What about that? How does God feel about that? God has to do something about that. If he's all holy and he's all powerful and he's all loving, then he has to do something and he has to judge. You cannot rip his judgment out of his character and retain love, holiness, and power. You can't retain those without having judgment. You can't. Because if you don't have judgment against evil, then you have a case for a crooked God. His character is crooked. It's not perfect. It's not righteous fully. It's not just fully. It's a little bit off. He's been bought out. There's a, the Bible says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Not a smidgen. So he has to, he has to, he has to. If he does not, we have a legitimate case that he has a warped character. He is coming, Jesus, but he's coming with clearly this is about justice and justice in a global cosmic sense. And also, we're going to see the death of death itself at the second coming of Jesus, Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's not just new people. It's not just resurrected people. It's a changed world. It's a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a, a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, as we sang in the in this chorus there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, and here's the point, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. No separation between God and people. He dwells with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. The old order of things has passed away. Wow, you read that slowly and you think of the implications of this. This is the death of death itself that's brought in by the second coming of Jesus. That's pretty powerful. So why is he coming back? Well, we prayed for it. He's coming to judge, and he's coming to eliminate the greatest enemy of all, and that is even death itself. When is it going to happen? Well, that's a trick question, as most church people know, because you're probably saying, no one knows when it's going to happen, Pastor. You're asking a trick question, and it's true. Uh, nobody knows the famous, famous uh, chapter uh, uh, sermon of Jesus from Matthew 24, Matthew going into Matthew 25. Uh, even he says uh, in verse 36, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Even Jesus doesn't know. Figure that conundrum out, okay? Even he doesn't know. No one knows. But what do we know? Well, we know something. We know about patterns that we see. We know about conditions on the world that we see. You read Jesus' 
discourse here in Matthew chapter 24, and he talks about a number of things, right? He talks about deception. He talks about war. He talks about uh, a nation rising against nation. Uh, that's ethnicity rising against ethnicity there in the language of the, the Greek. So uh, racism, war, famines, earthquakes, pestilence is a word that's used in Mark. And he says the frequency of these things are like, like uh, labor pains. So they're going to become more and more frequent is the implication. There's going to be persecution of people who are... Uh, Followers of Jesus, they're going to be hated by the nations, he says. Uh, they're going to be, uh, there's going to be a mass turning away from the faith. So church folks are going to start rejecting their faith. Um, people are going to turn away. There's going to be false messages, false prophecies to deceive people. It's all going to get worse and worse and worse. There's going to be an increase in all of these things. The, the, the moral decay is going to increase. And he says the love of most will grow cold. I mean, this is a bleak prognosis. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I mean, imagine first century would-be Messiah stands up there says, this temple here is going to be destroyed. And uh, by the way, everybody's going to know about me in the entire planet before I come back. Imagine. And here we, here we are, two, you know, two millennia after. And you've got billions and billions of people around the world who profess to have an authentic relationship with the resurrected Jesus. 2,000 years old, born in a little hamlet of a village, never traveled in his life, never wrote a book, and the influence uh, is astounding. He talks about strange things going on in the, in the temple, all kinds of things that are all, they all seem really, really not so good. And the, the patterns and the conditions is what he gives. He doesn't give specific dates. He doesn't give specific times. Acts chapter 1 uh, after his resurrection, Luke is reporting, and they say to uh, the people, say to Jesus, "Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? In other words, are you going to defeat the Romans? Is your kingdom here? We prayed your kingdom come. Is your kingdom here? And what does he say? He says, "Get your mind off the calendar. It's not for you to know the dates or the times the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you." You'll be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. So dates and times, specifics, you're never going to know. But what you will know is that you're going to see patterns and conditions. And people look at this now. And people are getting scared now. Especially when you see things happen around the globe. You know, you, you look at the first, first pandemic in a century. And people, you know, people take note. Even before that, uh, back in 2001, the terrorist attacks that changed the world, the places of worship, regardless of religious view, were full of people because people thought, this is, this, this, what's going on here? Is the world going to end? 
when uh, then, you know, after the pandemic and there's vaccines and you've got people with all this, you know, the vaccine, it's the end, it's the control, it's all, all these ideas that people have that start coming out because there's, there's fear in the air. And now you have the invasion of Ukraine and, I mean, the American president within the last week or so using the word Armageddon I don't even, personally, I don't even think the American president knows where the word Armageddon comes from. The word Armageddon is a Bible word. It's a place, the valley where there's going to be a battle, the valley of Megiddo. And he starts using the word Armageddon, you know, thinking about whether or not the Russian president is going to use a tactical nuclear warhead. Folk, that's... I'm not using fake language. Like, that's what's being talked about today, and there's fear in the air. And you, we need to pray like, man, it, you, you need to pray like never before that, that God would, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, wow, this strange times. It's patterns and conditions that Jesus talked about, and we won't know. Exactly, you can't pick it off, you can't presume it, you can't predict it. Now, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a, a pre-millennial, pre-tribulationist in your view, and there's all kinds of views about the future, uh, you know, and the order of things as presented in the Bible and all of that, and the passage we looked at last week, commonly interpreted as a, as a passage about the so-called rapture, which is the idea that, that God will remove uh, the believers and remove the church from the planet uh, before a period of seven years of brutal uh, conditions on planet Earth. And then at the end of the seven years, Jesus will come back. That's one view. Uh, there are many different views, but, the, but what all can agree on is that Jesus is coming is that he is coming. And by the way, at the resurrection, uh, I'm sorry, at the second coming of Jesus, that's where you have another resurrection, and that's the resurrection of those who have postured themselves against God. Against God. They too will be raised, and they too will face ultimate judgment and ultimate uh, separation from God. So we see this also in the book of Revelation. It's, it's quite the book, quite the book to read. But the main focus, again, is the, the purpose of the return of Jesus is to bring about ultimate justice. When will it happen? We don't know. How will we know? Well, this is an event like no other. This is not... You know, it happened 50 years ago invisibly in Brooklyn, New York, and, you know, Jesus is reigning out of an office somewhere uh, over a group of people, a select group of people or something. No, no. The way that this is presented in the scriptures, this is a global thing. This is an event like no other event. Matthew 27, uh, 24, verses 27 to 31 uh, as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's impressive when you look at lightning, isn't it? It's very impressive. It's very intimidating. Uh, Revelation 19, the passage we looked at before, this is visible. 
the armies of heaven following him. You know, he's coming to judge. He's co- this is not a little invisible event. This is a massive, this is an event like nothing no, anyone has ever seen. And, uh, you know, we can debate about, well, is there a rapture? Is the church even going to be there? Is it not going to be there? Debate all you want, folks. Regardless, this is something that is going to transform the whole world. It's not just for a group of people. This is, this is the whole, this is the big thing. Like, this is the biggest, this is the biggest event that's going to happen on planet Earth, all right? The, the way that this is portrayed in Scripture, in all sobriety, like, it's not, it's not presented in a sort of a mythological way and we're supposed to interpret it allegorically or something. No, no, no. The, and these people who wrote the New Testament, they thought that it was going to happen in their lifetime. They sincerely thought that. Uh, if, they, if they were to somehow come and see how we're living today, they would say, wow, you all are privileged. You all are privileged because you're a lot closer to when we lived you know, 2,000 years ago. It will be a great event, but also a dreadful event. You look at what Jesus says, uh, Matthew, I don't know if it's 27, 30, I think, it's, I think it's 24, verse 30, not 27, verse 30, so I made a mistake there. But uh, chapter 24, verse 30, he says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Watch. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. They're mourning the nations of the earth. They're mourning, most probably, because they've postured themselves up against God. And now they see that Jesus is back. He's returned. And maybe they mocked it, and maybe they scoffed it, or maybe they weren't ready for it, but they, they're not, they're, they're in mourning because they see this. This is no cause for excitement. This is no cause for celebration. It's a dreadful event for these nations that see, that are there when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus returns. It's a great event and a dreadful event. You have one group it's going to mourn, but we're told, on the other hand, to look forward to it, to look forward to it. So, again, Revelation 21, there is a new way on a new earth. You and I, we live in this way, you, you, the cradle to the grave. You and I, we live this way in this finite life, and we we realize over time how short it is. We start to see the process coming in our lives. We start to age. We start to see sickness. We start to, you start to observe things and you see there is a way, there is an order to this world. And it's not, it's not a particularly wonderful order. It can be very cruel It can be very unfair. Um, I look around this room and, uh, you know, I've done some funerals for for loved ones 
who have passed away. Some of you have been to some of the funerals. I mean, I've, I've done a number of them, folks. That's the present order of things. There's tears. There's mourning. There's crying. There's pain. There's injustice. And there's death. And it's not fair. But there's a new way on a new earth, a new order. And this was written to encourage these people in Revelation 21. People are being persecuted for their faith. People are being put to death probably for their faith. It's likely under Emperor Nero uh, when this was written. So they're, they're, they're having courage because they read this. They say to themselves, when this happens, everything that we've known, everything that we've lived is going to change. It's a new way on a new earth. Peter uh, terms it this way, and with this we'll, we'll finish. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Sounds pretty depressing, but not in his context. Again, writing to people who are persecuted. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And speed, it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction. <laughs> Looking forward to destruction, it seems like a paradox. The destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to what? To a new heaven, to a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's a different way. That's a different order. That's not the present system. That's not the way things work right now. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. It's something that we should look forward to to if we've postured ourselves before God, if we have turned to him, it's not something to be terrified of. It's something that brings about the greatest transformation, the greatest change that uh, is, is ever going to happen to us and to this whole world uh, that we live in. That's why in my view, you can't live without the second coming. I'd invite uh, Viano and uh, Simon, if you'd come and, and start to play in the back. And I want to finish this, um, this series by giving you a, a really blunt invitation, really blunt one. Um, if you are a, a Christ follower in this place, and I'm not saying you're perfect, I'm not saying you've got it all figured out, but you are, you would say, you would admit, if someone asked you, are you a Christian? Say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I had a lunch with an old friend this week, and I, and I 
He told me about things that were going on in his life. And I looked him straight in the eye and I said, are you still a Christian? And he said, yes. He said, I still am a Christian. I still believe in Jesus. Not perfect, but he, he, he answered the question straight. If, if you are today, you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to challenge you to do something if you haven't done it already. And I'm going to challenge you to get baptized in water. It's been a long time since we did a baptismal service in this church. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set that up for us. I'm not sure of the date just yet, but I'm going to set that up. You say, well, where are you going to get the water, Pastor? There's plenty of water. I'll find water from somewhere. But well, we're going to have a baptismal service. Maybe there's young people uh, in this room. You say, yeah, I'm going to put Christian and all that. Well, you've never been baptized before. You should be. And maybe your, this series has actually helped you cross the line of faith. Maybe you're online. And this has helped you cross a line of faith. And you would be able to answer the question with confidence. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I've crossed the line of faith. Well, you then, you need to be baptized in water. It's a, when you're baptized in water, you're showing that you're a believer. That's what it is. You're publicly saying you're a Christian. And let me tell you, the people in the New Testament who read some of the things that we uh, uh, read today and who heard some of the things that we read today. Oh boy, they, they had to publicly, you know, they paid a price for their faith. So if that's you, what I want you to do is I want you to, to come and see me at the end or contact me, reach out to me. I'm very reachable, as you know, email, cell, whatever. And we're going to set that up. Even if I've got one person, one person says, Pastor, I want to be baptized in water. I will set up a whole baptismal service just for one person. That's how important it is. That's how crucial it is. That's how critical it is. Father, I pray for each person in this room, those who are watching online, young people, seniors. Lord, may our hearts be postured to you. May they be submissive to you. You have revealed yourself to us in so many different ways. Lord, we are so privileged to live in this particular time where it's so clear. We can get the Bible in any language, in any medium we want. Uh, the more that we learn, the more that we look around the world, the more that the technology grows, the more it just shows us that you are screaming out that you exist to people and you desire people to humble themselves before you and to submit uh, our hearts to you. So help us to do that, Lord. I, I pray on behalf of, of those who are who are trying to figure it out today and maybe a little bit on the fence. I, God, I just come to you and ask that you would receive me and ask that you would take me. Lord, forgive me for my efforts to try and do life myself. Forgive me for the sin that I've done. Forgive me for the people that I've hurt. Forgive me for the suffering that I have caused. And Lord, take my life and I submit my life to you as best I can. I posture myself before you, O oh God, who has called me even at this moment. Lord, we, we, uh, we ask for your grace and for your mercy 
in our lives. May our faith and may our hope grow even as we anticipate and look forward to your return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids over at number 11. Come and see me if you want to talk about baptism. I would love to have a conversation with you about it. All kinds of activity also happening at the desk out front. Uh, God bless you. Have a great, great Sunday. Thank you.